informative podcast all about training working dogs look no further than the lwdg pod dog this weekly show is hosted by me joanne perrott founder of the ladies working dog group and i chat to experienced trainers and experts in the field who will give you helpful tips and advice whether you're just getting started or you've been working dogs for years this podcast will have something for you so pull up a chair pour yourself a cup of coffee and tune in to lwdg pod dog and let us help you build a better bond with your best friend. Hello and welcome to another episode of LWDG Pod Dog. This week is our 52nd week and that means that the podcast is one year old, which we are incredibly excited about. This week I am joined by the amazing LWDG group expert Claire Denya and her amazing husband John Denya. And we're going to be talking all about 10 things dog trainers wishes you knew about training dogs before we get into that how are you both today fantastic thank you joe yep very good thank you got a couple of days off had a nice bank holiday so yeah we're raring to go brilliant now the idea of this podcast is to have a little bit of fun about it but also to educate as we always do so let's start with what is the first thing you wish that people coming to you knew about training dogs? Claire, you can start. Okay, so the first thing that I personally would think it would be really useful for dog owners to know about dogs that they're going to bring into their home and train is the breed traits. So what it is they're actually purchasing when they pick their puppy. Um, I truly believe that if more owners researched breed traits, what that what that breed was was bred and developed to do, um, there would be far less not so good surprises um, when they bring their puppy home. But a lot of people, sadly, still really look at just the size and the looks of the dog rather than knowing and understanding the breed traits and I think dog breeds tend to go through what I would call fashions don't they everybody wants this type of dog then everybody wants this type of dog and like you said a lot of people don't really know what's going to end up inside of the puppy's genetic absolutely I mean we see it an awful lot with people you know like you just said about trends and fashion with getting dogs it become very fashionable to get working cocker spaniels and working labradors but those people a lot of them don't intend to work them and then maybe don't understand that they need to invest some time into appropriate training for that dog to fulfill its needs yeah that, those needs they will drive some of the ways that you will train the dog or um, things that you'll concentrate on early because you know you're going to be competing with some of those breed traits later on um, far better to have laid the groundwork so that you don't have to fix a problem later uh, than to just suddenly let the, the dog um, start guarding start herding and wondering where the hell that's come from I think with the whole idea of having a working dog was the fact that COVID made everybody go for a walk outside. They went for a walk outside and decided we are now an active family. And as an active family, we need an active dog. 
but I think they sort of forgot that pretty much every other dog in the world is also an active dog. It didn't <laughs> need the word working before it, did it? No, exactly. <laughs> okay, so that's our, our first sort of thing we wish people knew. What is our second thing? Your dogs don't have an ego. So training will take as long as it takes. There are so many variables there, the, uh, the breed of the dog, the owner's experience, the environment that the dog is growing up in, they will all have an impact on how long something takes to train. Um, number of times we get asked, well, how many lessons will I need? We can certainly make improvements um, during a lesson, but the majority of the improvements will happen at home in between. Um, so they have a limited amount of time with us um, to achieve that. As long as your dog's enjoying the training, it takes as long as it takes and the dog will get there. If you get frustrated with them because they're not learning quick enough, um, they just won't get there. It's like having a child trying to teach them to read or write. Um, you, know, you, do, you don't uh, discipline them or tell them off for trying to learn something and being a little bit slow at picking it up. You make it fun and you keep them going with it. Do you think that's the case, though? Like, as humans, we understand, or I hope most of us understand, that there needs to be a commitment to lifelong learning, to always to grow, always to develop, always to improve. Do you think that people take on dogs and don't see that a dog really needs that type of investment in it as well? Yes, certainly. I don't think people get the idea that dogs learn from life. Any experience they have that benefits them um, in some way, shape or form, which might not be a benefit for us, there will be a light bulb will go on on your dog's head. Uh, and all of a sudden, they this is a great idea. I'm going to do more of this. Um, very much unlike us, where we decide if we want to pay rise or we don't want to learn a new skill for um, a project or something that we go out and actively try to learn something. Dogs will just learn on the fly. Everything that happens, any experience they have, they will pick something up from that. And they are so quick to learn, aren't they? I think I watch mine sometimes and even, even bad behaviours, they will pick them up pretty quick and they become habits pretty quick. Especially bad behaviours. <laughs> uh, yeah, when you think of what a bad behaviour is from our point of view, it's just something we wish the dog wasn't doing. From the dog's point of view, there isn't really good or bad. You know, I, I don't believe there's many dogs that are actually born evil. Um, there's something in it for them that they learn um, and it's worthwhile for them. It's just us that has that view or if it's a being a good behaviour or a bad behaviour. That's really, really true. And and it is usually something that accidentally happens on a walk once and the dog then remembers that. They, they really do remember locations and things that have happened that they found self-rewarding. And the owner's like, it only happened once and, and now the dog wants to do it again. It's because the dog found it rewarding. So we have to translate that over into training, don't we? If the dog finds something rewarding, they're going to want to do more of it. I only ate chocolate once and now I've had it every day for hundreds of years. <laughs> <laughs> okay going on what is our third thing so the third one that i'm gonna um, mention is leave your dog wanting more when it comes to training people tend to really overtrain um, and stop when the dog gets bored or when the dog is losing motivation um I think if you always stop when your dog's really enjoying it and reward them for that behavior and then give them a break or finish for the day, 
the dog is left with this really nice, rewarding feeling about that training session. And they're going to be much more likely when you pick up again the next day or two days time, whenever you train again, much more likely to be really in the game straight away because you've left them wanting more. And it's really valuable with retrieving. So when I work with reluctant retrievers, which is one of my passions, when I work with them, I always say to the owners, you've got to leave the dog working more. Don't leave it, leave the dog wanting more. Sorry. Um, you don't want to kind of like push it. Oh, that was so good. I'm just going to do another one. And then the dog goes off the boil. It's a mistake people make in training a lot. For me, always leaving the dog wanting more um is going to give you a better success rate and you're both going to enjoy your training sessions much more yeah there is such a thing as uh it's called latent learning and it's where your dog goes off and they have time overnight or between your training sessions to actually ponder what went on um if you imagine um you taking a lesson in something quite often it goes in one ear and you do it and then it goes out the other ear and afterwards you're not quite sure what's got what's happened there and it takes a bit of processing in between um, to actually get it rather than kind of following instruction um, bit by bit, which is exactly the same as with dogs. Uh, we can put them through the motions, but in between there's going to be a period where your dog's going, okay, so why did I get that biscuit from you? Why did this happen? Uh, and they're learning what what um, actions produce those consequences. I've talked about this before, with my, even with my dad, he would actually physically train one for maybe... 10 to 20 minutes it would sit potentially watching another four train for maybe an hour whilst he's watching and he'd always say to me whilst they're watching they're learning and then I think for such a small amount of time experienced trainers tend to get so much out of a dog and and train them so much but when we are new to it we tend to think you know slog at it slog at it repeat 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 and there is an advantage to that but it is what you're saying is the time we ask the dog to repeat something. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also with some dogs, um, well, my youngest, Rose, for instance, she will train beautifully for like 20 minutes to half an hour. Um, if I try and push it more than that on a one-to-one -one basis, she starts to feel a bit, uh, you know, you can see she's just like, the brain's done. The brain's done. Physically, she could do more, but the brain's done. Um, whereas Indy can train for longer than that. Yet, if you put Rose into a group class that was, say, an hour long or an hour and a half long, because it's a group session, there's a lot more breaks, so she can handle longer. So, yeah, absolutely that. Okay, so that's our point three on our ten things. What is number four? So on a very similar vein um, to that, uh, quality training is always going to be better than quantity. When you train quality, you're, you're building perfection into the dog. You're training things purposefully so that the dog does it step by step. They learn muscle memory, good habits. Uh, when you um, teach using quantity, all you're really gaining there is experience. And that experience can be good or bad. If you're repeating the same thing over and over and it's not brilliant what you're doing, the dog's going to become very, very adept at doing something badly. So far better quality over quantity. And that's the importance, I suppose, of us going out and having a plan at the beginning of our session as well, isn't it? So that we are not just doing stuff for the sake of it. Correct. Yeah. 
yeah, always, always have a plan. And it's one of the things that can be very useful about finding a good trainer. Um, you're not always repeating the same thing. You're, they've always got new ideas and little things to leave you with. As much as anything to inspire you to go away and do that little bit of um, quality work, um, rather than, as you say, just going through the motions over and over and finding that what you're doing is quite sloppy. Yeah, and I also think we're going to see a trainer. They help you to stretch your learning. So not take it too far, so you're overwhelming yourself or the dog, but taking it past the level you are. Because it's very easy if your dog is good at something to just keep on doing the same things because it's easy to do. There's no worry for the dog. There's no worry for you. But it's not getting you to develop the stretch to get that dog to improve. Yeah, sometimes a dog needs to make a mistake to learn, if that makes sense. But as long as you don't let them keep repeating that mistake, that's the key. So making mistakes isn't a bad thing, but repeating mistakes is a bad thing. Okay, so that's our number four. What's our number five? Okay, number five. (laughs) I think this is a good one. Uh, Number five, I wish that all owners would understand the benefit of telling the trainer the truth (laughs) so what I mean by that is don't hide things from your trainer that are happening with your dog don't give us a half story on what's happening with your dog because for a trainer to really help an owner with their dog we need to know the full picture So if we're not getting that full picture, we only have to work with what we've been told. So if we've not got that full picture, it restricts how much help we can give. Um, And on the same coin of that, these two things are the same. When you're then given that advice, that program, that structure, um, that exercise by your trainer, you need to do the whole thing. You can't pick little bits out of it that you want to do and leave other bits out because that's not how it works. So for me, getting the full picture from the owner and then me giving the owner all of the information they require and then them following that process, that is a really, really important thing that I think owners need to understand. A, a trainer is only able to help as much as you allow them. It is very easy to turn up, especially if it's a new trainer, and they say, um, you know, what the, what's your dog good at or what's your dog not so good at? And you are slightly, I almost think, or for me, you'd have been like, oh, my God, I don't really want to tell them how bad this dog is. But I see what you're saying, absolutely. Is if you, you know, at some point, even within a couple of minutes, they're going to see whether you're telling the truth or not by the dog's behaviour. So you might as well turn up, tell, tell all, and then work from there, because that trainer is there to help you yeah absolutely it's really difficult to help a client fully if we're not given all the information to work with you know so a little example of that um if people's recall is breaking down and they don't tell us that the recall is breaking down out on walks and the dog then suddenly starts exhibiting behaviors in the in the one-to-one or the group class And we're looking, thinking, hmm, have a feeling something else is going on here. So you start trying to get that information from the client and you say, does he ever ignore you when you're out on a walk and you recall? Or in the garden, does he ignore you? Because 
these things generally don't just happen. They normally build up and they start usually somewhere in the home. So getting all of that kind of information is just so important. So it's better not to hide things from your trainer and to tell them what's going on. But as I say, it's really, really equally so, so important when you're then given the training techniques, um, the exercises and the advice to modify behavior or to train a new behavior or to teach your dog something new you can't just pick and choose from pieces of it and go well I don't want to do that piece but I will do this piece you're not going to get that result if you don't follow it there is a caveat to that though I suppose as well because I found for me once or twice that something that the dog can do perfectly at home in its own environment I've gone to see a trainer and they've gone, can the dog do that? I'm like, yeah, yeah, the dog's fine on that. And then the dog makes me look like a total ass because it completely doesn't do it. I'm like, I swear that dog normally does that. That's really common, but it goes both ways. Some dogs are really good at home, but naughtier in a new environment or at the training environment because they're showing off in front of the other dogs or something like that. Other dogs are the opposite. (laughs) and they're actually much harder to help because if we don't see a behavior um we can't find start to find out where it's going wrong um without a lot of questioning and good answers um from the owner and sometimes they can be conservative with the truth or they just tell us little bits and pieces um so sometimes we end up trying to treat a symptom without knowing what the root cause is because we haven't got that information and the other thing with um people are not telling you exactly what's going on there is quite often then the problems exist for a long time and they become ingrained yeah. it's much much harder to deal with at that point we see a sort of within the lwdg as well when there's like master classes when i look i can see which like sections which chapters have gone in and if something's completed and i think it's almost our nature we just tend to not complete people like picking bits out like pick and mix and i'm like you needed to really watch that bit and that bit for that bit to make sense. So it is important if you're going to commit to something to see it through, isn't it? Yeah, it is. very. Because otherwise what happens is the, the client doesn't follow through with all of that and they don't get the full results. So they think that actually that didn't work, but it's not that it didn't work. It wasn't actually done properly or given the full time to, you know, to change that behavior or to train that new exercise or whatever. It's a process. And just for anybody that does go along to a class and their dog absolutely behaves like a dick at that point, shows them up, um, don't be embarrassed by it. If you've got a good trainer there, they will be able to work out what's going on just through a series of questioning. And they will they will believe you if your dog is doing all the right things at home. And it's probably that your dog just needs to proof those behaviours in other environments rather than they can't do it and you're um, blatantly lying to them. There is, there is a difference. And um, with a few questions, you can normally see through uh, to see what the truth is underneath. Did John just make our podcast explicit? Yes, he did. <laughs> you said dick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on to um to thing number six yeah thing number six so equipment can help you to control your dog when you're training them but the equipment doesn't actually train the dog so um, just putting a harness on a dog doesn't stop your dog pulling it teaches the dog how to behave on a harness but only if you put in the work to teach it how to behave on a harness So um, you want to make sure that whenever there's equipment involved in it, it's just a means to an end. It's not something that does the work for you. I 
think me and uh, Claire and some of the other experts, we've talked about this at length, isn't it? You know, people's perception of a tool, of an equipment, piece of equipment. It is never the tool that causes abuse. It's how we use that tool. Yeah, every single piece of equipment can be good or bad, depending on how it's used or how the dog views it. You know, I I know plenty of people that really want their dog on a harness and the dog is terrified of the harness, yet they keep trying to put the dog on the harness because they've been told that that's the better way to do it. The dog is terrified. So how's that better? I will openly hold my hand up. In Wales, the use of an electric collar is banned. So it's not something that... I've ever used in training or seen used in training locally to me and I wasn't really against them but I didn't really see the benefits of them in any way until on one of the podcasts we were talking about um, an electric collar being used as a vibration collar with a deaf dog and I was like it really opened my eyes up to seeing what we're discussing here you cannot hear or think about or listen to somebody's using x y and z and judge it without understanding how they are using it why they are using it and what the purpose of it is yeah and it's the same with thing even things like food when we use food to train a dog we're using it to show the dog what we want to guide them where we need them to be the food isn't training the dog when you take that food away the dog should still be able to do those those uh, things it's just it's a piece of equipment that's used in that that um, piece of time just to control the dog or to help them to learn yeah it's really interesting it's like slip leads isn't it you know i use slip leads on 99 percent of dogs and a slip lead for me when used appropriately is probably one of the gentlest ways of teaching a dog to walk nicely on a lead we explain all the time if you look at a flat collar but again it's not about the equipment it's about the use so a flat collar if a dog does pull into a flat collar all of the pressure is in one area i'm pushing that's why my voice went funny because you can't see me because it's a podcast but a flat collar obviously will put pressure onto one part of the throat if the dog pulls now obviously if you teach the dog not to pull a flat collar is not going to hurt the dog If you've got a dog that does pull, a flat collar is going to put pressure there. That's when you get that kind of gagging sound. Um, So a slip lead, if you have a dog that pulls maybe mildly and we want to teach him how to walk correctly, a slip lead will dissipate. I can't say that word. Can you say it for me, John? No. (laughs) (laughs) Dissipate, dissipate um, the pressure. But again, it's all about the use of how a tool is used, not the tool. And you're right, Joe. what you said about e-collars. Personally, we've never used one. I can't ever foresee myself using one. But the reason I would never say I will never, ever use one is because I might not have met that dog yet or I haven't worked with that deaf dog where actually I use the vibrate. You know, so I think you have used vibrate have it on a deaf dog haven't you yeah yeah john yeah, has yeah. um so you know i haven't but i think this is the thing we have to be open-minded to see that it's the use of everything not the tool okay so that is our number six what is our number seven okay number seven i'm going to mention this one because it's one that comes up in so many conversations and it's actually quite a big subject socialization isn't doesn't mean letting your dog play fight with other dogs I have to throw that one in there (laughs) because it's still even though we educate on this so much and other trainers educate on this so much 
there's still this huge misconception that socialising your dog means that they have to play fight, which is essentially what it is, with every other dog they meet. And it's just such a massive issue. And it is such a big reason, a big cause for some of the behaviours that we see in dogs through adolescence and into early adulthood, which could be avoided. So it has to be thrown in there, (laughs) number seven. (laughs) This is one of our bugbears, isn't it? Because A, we see the ladies who do it correctly and get so infuriated trying to take their dog into new environments to train them because there's somebody screaming, my dog's friendly, as it boulders up to them and, and spins their dog over and causes massive issues within their dog that's doing really well. Yeah. But also because if you go to these places, the dogs that are allowed to fly around, whatever breed they are, there is always a large percentage of dogs who are terrified and their owners are like, oh, we they love this. And I'm like, no, they bloody well don't. If we're going to go explicit, we might as well go there. You've already done it, John, so we keep it going. It's just like, what, what do they think is going to come from it? Now, coming from a, a background where we had large numbers in kennels and all used to go together, they would be rough and tumble, but nothing aggressive. They would have almost what I would like to call a peck in order. It would change as different bitches come into season it would change when younger dogs got older it it was always changing but it was never it was never aggressive never but I never ever saw what I see when I go in a park which is like dogs licking their lips terrified they're upside down people are laughing and joking not even in paying any attention to dogs at all and I'm just like please for the love of god will you put your dogs back on lead and save them yeah it's um it's actually quite heartbreaking to watch and I feel the same when I when I go to a an you know a local park and you walk through you will always see one dog being bullied another dog being a bully one dog hiding behind its owner and the owner's trying to push it out from behind its legs to go and play because that's apparently what we should be doing um, and the dog's begging the owner to rescue them and the owners don't advocate for their dog. So they end up with a dog that becomes fear aggressive. We get dogs come to us that have um, frustration on the lead because as a young puppy, they were allowed to pull their owner toward every single dog and person. And then when the dog weighs 20 plus kilos and the owner starts saying, well, no, you can't pull me. All of a sudden the dog gets extremely frustrated. So you get vocalization and lunging and all of those things the dogs are just not learning the right things you know for me socialization with people and dogs should be polite meet and greets it should be done in a way where the dog learns how to behave around people and dogs not free for all and not certainly not a dog being beaten up and bullied or another dog bullying you know it's just it's just really sad to see socializing is one of those things that people don't really think of as training people think training is teaching your dog to walk on a lead Mm. uh what a recall command means or what a whistle means but a lot of product of what your dog becomes is what you do in between those sessions how you let them behave what they get up to certainly socializing the dog incorrectly can lead to a dog which has a much um, harder time recalling because it's now obsessed with other dogs 
So you can't get the dog to come away from another dog or the dog runs up to other dogs regardless of what you want and comes away as they're good and ready. Uh, and that's just one example of the things that you do between your training sessions where you think you're actually training or actually your dog is learning all number of things um, that are going to affect their behaviour in general. Yeah, because it doesn't take a dog a lot to learn. If I stay about four foot away from my mum or dad, they never catch me. Like that is literally, they'll come one day, they'll recall, you'll see them in the park or wherever, they'll recall to like four foot. And they know, it's like, and then that's an entire game for them because they're like, ha ha, you're not getting near me. And I, I suppose people don't know what they don't know. And when you start out, you read all about it. And with the best intentions, you take them along to like happy meetups and puppy socialization and things that are put together by. And I, I will say it by maybe trainers who are not thinking of the best interests of the puppies in the way they're running them, because they're not running them in the way we're discussing. We're polite meet and greets, making it very, very calm, teaching the new owner what they should be doing. It is a case where those dogs are then taught to just be anywhere other than with the owner. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really sad. It is something I know like we've like talked about this point a little bit but I also think as well it's, it's the same way I understand that a lot of people going to work need to put their dogs into something like dog crash or whatever it's called but it's looking at how they run them as well isn't it because it can be the same free for all in a little soft play where dogs are getting bullied dogs are not getting what they need to feel comfortable for eight hours a day yeah, I mean, there's so many services you can pick and choose from now. Like, um, we actually have a couple of our clients that train with us with their dogs. They run dog walking, pet sitting, and drop-in services. Drop-in services are brilliant because somebody comes in, checks on your dog, stays with them for whatever the agreed amount of time is, lets them out for a toilet, but maybe that person isn't a trainer. So unless you actually ask for a dog walk, not going to ruin any of your dog walking by doing a drop in are you so when people sort of say oh my dog walker lets my dog pull um so it's it's breaking habits if you get somebody to do a drop-in service a couple of times a day the dog doesn't need to go to a full daycare you know um dogs should be trained to cope with being on their own and that's that's another subject which we're not on now but they should and then if the dog is trained to be able to cope with being on its own for periods of time then a drop-in service is perfect or even a walk you know a dog walk but personally I think the drop-in services are brilliant and if we look at their behavior in the home they pretty much want to sleep all day so then being there with somebody just checking up on them just making sure they're okay it's yeah. probably far more comfortable for a dog than having to be on its guard for eight hours while surrounded by a load of dogs it doesn't know absolutely 100% Okay, that's us putting the right the world to rights on socialization. But shall we now go on to point eight? Okay, uh, your dog will not hate you for saying no to them. Education is completely different to abuse, neglect, or deprivation. Your dog has to learn what's right, and they also have to learn what's wrong. And the only way they can know that is if you tell them. I love this one too, and I'm sure this will turn into a small rant because <laughs> we, we tend to be passionate about certain things. As the years have gone on within the LWDG, I don't think that we change in any way our, our friendliness, our welcoming of new people, of 
wanting to help them learn again they don't know what they don't know and there's a lot of things out there at the moment pulling for people's attention this is a correct way to train your dog you go on youtube there's about fifty thousand videos on how to teach your dog to sit but i think this concept that we can never say no is actually detrimental to the dog in such a big way there's always going to be more than one option open for the dog the dog at some point has to choose the right path. Now, if they're not going to choose the right path, the only option that you have after that is management, keeping a lead on them all the time. So you have to teach them that this is correct. And as long as you do this, everything's happy and we carry on as we are. But if you go to do this, you're wrong. I'll tell you that you're wrong. And I make a big deal of when I'm with a client of not telling them how to do that. Mm. They will often say to me, well, how do I say no to the dog? Mm. And that's going to come down to the relationship between them and the dog. I can give them a few suggestions, but I can't tell them exactly how to say no to their dog. If you think about it, it's a little bit like, I don't know, the police coming up to you and arresting you and say, well, I'm not going to tell you what you did wrong, but you did something because, you know, <laughs> you're, now, you're now in paths or sort of back on a lead or whatever. But I'm not going to tell you, try and work it out, Bella. And you'd be like, well, I've done a hundred things this week. Which one was it? So I think that if we don't tell the dogs what it is that they're doing wrong and help them to understand, it's really, really difficult for them to to know how to behave around us. Yeah, and, I, you know, when I, like John, very much so, how you say no to a dog will vary greatly from dog to dog. Every dog is so different. But if I'm in a one-to-one with a client and clearly the dog is making a lot of mistakes and the owner looks really baffled. I'll give them options. I'm like, we could do this. We could do this. We could do this. And they're like, is that telling my dog? No, is that a correction? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, wow. Is that all I've got to do? I think they just have it in their head that saying no means being really horrible. Um, And it doesn't (laughs) at all. And then they look really shocked when I say, this is how I, this is how I appropriately correct a dog on a lead. It might look like this, or it might look like this, and they'll go, oh, my dog looks absolutely fine with that. And I'm like, of course they do, you know. And I think leading on for what John's saying there about, you know, your dog's not going to hate you for knowing no. I think a lot of dogs are very grateful when they're finally told what the boundaries are because then you can live a much more harmonious life and the dog has more freedom. That's the bottom line here. You can't give dogs freedom if they don't understand there has to be a more of a way, doesn't it, in society that saying no is some sort of form of abuse because we have no problem whatsoever in our schools, in our homes, everywhere, saying to a child, yes, you can do that. No, you can't. It's the same thing. It's, a, you know, no means no. It's not a negative thing in our human life. I don't understand why it's become a, a bad thing in our dog training life no is an absolutely perfectly acceptable thing to tell a dog dogs say no to each other all the time (laughs) dogs do not live the way that a lot of people are now saying that we should train a dog dogs are not like that if you watch dogs together dogs tell each other no you think it's a case of we are trying i want to say humanizing dogs but it's not even that because like I said we tell our children no and we tell our husbands no and our wives no so I don't understand completely the relationship that's sort of being encouraged between a human and a dog where it's just so unbalanced isn't it 
I genuinely feel, and I know we've spoke about this a lot of times, and it's something I talked to John about and I talked to you about as well. I genuinely feel there is still, because there is still abuse out there in the dog training world, there is. I think people are then drawn in to feeling like they have to do it completely the opposite way because the alternative is that without actually logically sitting down and I say to clients all the time, apply common sense and you won't go far wrong. Be fair to the dog and apply common sense and you won't go far wrong. But it has to be fair. We have, like, if you're listening to this and it's your first podcast with us, there are loads of podcasts on topics that will help you learn about this. We've got The Loaded Choice, which talks about, you know, giving dogs options. Um, constructive correction but in probably every single podcast we talk about this in some way but I do think as well that going forward we all have to start like not standing up it doesn't need to be a revolt but we do need to say actually telling dogs no is not a bad thing there is almost a fear within the community to say I, I correct my dog because of that abuse but there's abuse in again in the human world that doesn't stop the rest of us throwing logic out absolutely okay what is topic number nine uh number nine that's me isn't it if you find the right dog trainer (laughs) and that's always going to be the thing find the right dog trainer for you understand that your dog trainer genuinely will be caring about your relationship with your dog so this does pick into all the other little ones that we've said already um we genuinely care so the advice that you're given is because we care about the relationship between you and your dog we want the relationship between you and your dog to be better to be to be one that's harmonious and so always think about that you know it kind of goes back to what I said about one of the other um one of the other top 10 where I mentioned um about when we give you a program or or a training exercise you can't just dip in and out of it because you won't get the full results so you always need to kind of bear in mind that your trainer if you've got your right trainer your trainer will give you the advice they give you because they genuinely care about the relationship between you and your dog you must like form a huge bond with both the owner and the dog because they're in your lives weekly is it hard to see when people aren't taking that on board yeah it's really 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 hard especially when you know certain things can be fixed very quickly and effectively or you see an owner struggling and you see them emotional about it you know because they're struggling And so you're trying to give them this advice and maybe they take half of the advice on board or they don't want to put the work in in between classes. There is a limit to what a trainer can do to help you if you don't take that advice on board. So basically, I think what I'm trying to say is for me, the advice I give is because my heart's in it. My heart is there to try and help the dog and the owner have the best relationship that they can. It's not about ego for me. It's not about training with the best dogs or you know only working with owners that are going to you know compete with their dogs at high level for me my job is about helping an owner have the best relationship with its dog that it can possibly have 
Do you want to add to that, John? Yeah, there's nothing worse than um, if you have an owner comes to class and they've got the dog on the lead and the owner is close to tears. Mm. Yeah, they're, they're getting so frustrated or wound up with this dog that they bought because they want to enjoy life with the dog or they want yeah. to give their dog a good life, a uh, fulfilling life. But the dog is just bringing them to tears every single time. Um, and fixing those kind of things is, is so much more rewarding than, as Claire said, teaching a, um, perhaps a naturally talented dog to get to a very high standard. Um, so for us um, in particular, and it will develop, it will change from uh, trainer to trainer, but for us, it's about building a good relationship with the dog and the owner. There's a reason that you've got a dog. Yeah, not many people buy a dog purely for a tool or purely to make them look good at competition. Uh, most people, um, if you look up and down the country, will buy a dog because they want a pet, they want a companion, um, they want they want an animal that they can go out and have activities that they get they do together. That's their primary reason. So having that, and then finding that um, they haven't bought what they thought they bought, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that is is um, that goes back to breed traits. <laughs> it, it, it's quite difficult for them. So sorting that out, so you get that relationship right. Um, is always top of the list of things that we do. Yeah. And once they start to get that right, because the dog's being rewarded a lot more often, there's less, less that frustration that the dog's being rewarded more, you tend to find the behaviours are better. So as soon as you kind of chip into that and start get going, it becomes a self-rewarding process. I think I see it a lot. I saw it actually in class this weekend. One client got really frustrated with her dog because it was making this mistake. And I had to get her to stop and just breathe and I said look you're getting frustrated so the dog then worries because the dog wants to get it right but isn't getting it right can sense that you're frustrated and it was a vicious cycle and we did the exercise after a little reset and we did the exercise again and it was perfect and it was like see the difference when you just relax stop putting the pressure on yourself stop putting the pressure on your dog enjoy each other and learn together the difference is incredible, really. There's sort of like two sides of that as well, isn't it? Because like when we buy a dog or most of us buy a dog, we buy it as almost a member of our family, but almost as a hobby. We want yeah. the dog to enrich our lives because most of us have crappy jobs. We have hard lives. You know, having a family, having partners is, is always rewarding, but it can be hard work. And sometimes I know like for me, Going out to spend time with the dog is my way of decompressing from everything else in the world. If I go out and take the Cray Twins together, that's <laughs> harder than when, like, whatever it is I'm trying to decompress from. So it can be incredibly frustrating if the basics are not instilled in a way where you can just simply go for a walk and, and the dog is well behaved. But on the other side of that, where you're saying like frustration when you're training, you're just, it's the same thing, isn't it? You're just breaking apart your relationship with your dog, not cementing it. Absolutely. And I think it's always, you know, you know, as trainers, we don't have egos. Dogs don't have egos. Owners shouldn't have egos either. Everybody's journey is individual with their dog. And our job is to help that owner get the best out of that dog. We don't care if the dog makes a mistake in class. That's our job. That's what we're there for. You know, so owners need to worry less and understand that the right trainer will care deeply about the relationship with you and your dog. And if they see you struggling, they will want to help you. 
I think from the Gundog holiday, when I um, when I watched all the ladies there, we all turned up and we were so nervous and so focused and so stressed. And that morning, dogs were okay, but the dogs were like, obviously, like, why are you all so stressed? And where are we and what's going on? And as we all started to calm down and, you know, I look at the photos that the photographer took and in the morning, we are like, really serious people and as the afternoon comes we start like smiling by the second day we are all smiling and everybody's like oh my dog's getting better but everybody just relaxed into it hasn't they yeah a hundred percent excellent and what is our last thing that we want people to know in this podcast your dog isn't deaf <laughs> if your dog isn't doing something, raising your voice isn't going to get them to do it anymore. Uh, they either don't understand what you want, they don't understand the context that you're asking for it in, they haven't performed that task enough in the environment that you're in, um, or you've taught you've to- your dog that they don't have to listen to you. So this is like people going, like, Ella, Ella. Rather yeah. than just realizing Ella's not listening. Yeah, yeah I, I say to clients all the time, and, and I think I've said this in a couple of podcasts, so I'm not going to bang on because, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, you said that before, Claire. Uh, but I literally um, say to people, if something goes wrong twice, change it. The same applies to if your dog ignores your voice twice, do something about it. Don't just stand there hollering, blowing your whistle, shouting commands changing commands as john said the dog isn't unless your dog is actually a deaf dog your dog isn't deaf they are either choosing to ignore you or something's happened or something's happening in that moment where the dog is not able to or doesn't want to um follow through (laughs) basically (laughs) i find it really interesting with rex the new dog i have you He's not been taught to respond to vocal commands. He just responds to a whistle. So on the odd time that I'm stupid enough to go out without a whistle, um, I literally, I'll say to him, sit, and he's just like, what? And that dog will do anything on a whistle in, in a heartbeat. But when you vocally command him, because he's not used to it, he just doesn't get it. So that's a perfect example of what we're saying here. It's like, does the dog understand? what you were asking me to do. <laughs> I wouldn't take it too seriously. <laughs> okay, so that's our 10 things that we wanted to cover in this podcast. Before we end today's, before we end today's amazing podcast, is there any other things that you want to sort of add on, guys? Extendable leads are great for measuring your curtains. They're not good for walking <laughs> in the dark. When an extendable lead goes on a dog, it's not teaching the dog anything. It's just restricting them from being able to go outside of a particular radius. They're also quite dangerous. I think it's important to say that the ratchets fail on them pretty often. Uh, You know, I often read posts. um, Rachel B, um, she actually shared one where she had had permission to share it about a dog whose ratchet had gone on the uh, on the extendable line by road and the dog got run over. I mean, they're pretty dangerous and they cause injuries to people's legs regularly as well. So on, from a serious perspective, they are quite dangerous. 
They should have little markings on them, like a tape measure, which says, this is a bit silly. Are you sure? Now, you're, <laughs> now things are getting stupid. And, and what kind of idiot are you? Your dog is in the next county. <laughs> what always frightens me is when, do you know, like if you're walking in a, an open field, okay, but when you're walking down the street and the dog comes around the corner and the dog's still coming towards you, I'm like, where is the person attached to the dog? And then I'm thinking from a... From my dog's perspective, I would never allow them to be able to get around that corner out of sight because people are very quick to steal anything and your dog is away from you and you cannot see what's going on. So I think they, they almost encourage your dog not to be in contact with you, not to be checking in with you. Because if the dog's on the corner, he doesn't care where you are because he thinks you're on the other end of this lead. He's not checking in to see that he knows where he is or what's going on. And there's always tension on them as well, so the way they're designed. Just yeah, I I agree on this one. I feel like this has gone a little bit like room 101. So we've just chucked it between. Is there anything else we want to add? Labradors are not meant to be fat. <laughs> yeah, I I do agree with you. Society tends to encourage but that idea, right? Give millions and millions of treats, make them a little bit like chubby. I think if you look at like, and I know it's a breed trait as well, but if you look at like a working lab and a show lab, we've talked about this before. Charlotte used to have show labs because she was part of the Unkennel Club and wanted to do like obedience and heel work and all things like that. And she had this big he was gigantly enormously fat and we didn't feed him more than he needed. He was just, he was just a monster on a lead, right? And then when you look at a working dog, they're just a completely different breed, like set up and makeup. I think that's the thing. It's the difference between fat and conformation, isn't it? And, you know, yes. breed conformation is one thing, but an overweight dog is bad for its health. So it's being realistic about it. Uh, it, it's just that, that thing when the, the client goes, where's the Labrador? So he, yeah. so he's going to be, uh, and actually, no, yeah, this dog can only eat what you allow them to eat, or they exercise as much as you allow them to exercise. Um, they're exactly the same as we are. I got all excited when we knew Did Buddy, which was, well, it was, it was quite a few months ago now, wasn't it, Claire? I thought, because he he's always been a pathetic eater and quite excitable, uh, high energy all the time. And I thought, oh, when we knew Drim, most dogs like tend to put on weight. So maybe he'd look at a little bit more, just a nice covering so he doesn't look so like scrawny on the back end. And he may calm down a bit. Um, I hope it doesn't take his driveway. Neither happened. Um. He, literally has not put on a single ounce of weight and he literally has still got this massive drive and I think again those conceptions that that will happen to all dogs it doesn't does it every single dog is different yeah 100% okay John have you got any other pearlers to pop in on the end on this <laughs> didn't they now John she has spent many many years showing the whole group how beautifully lovely she is genuinely beautifully lovely and now you've come in and caused Chaos. Chaos, John. I'll, I'll keep the last one to myself then. No, go on, John. You might as well make us all giggle towards the okay. end. <laughs> Milo is not a unique name. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen 17 of them this month. <laughs> but do you think they probably go through trends as well? Because yeah, they do. Like the amount of people I hear calling Buddy, I was somewhere the other day and I heard a lady with two cocker 
cockapoos, I want to say they were, because they were like a little bit furry. They were caught by Dianella, and I was just watching them, and I was like, she called them bit by Dianella, and I was just like, what is the chances? Yeah, it's, it is. You do get trends and phases of different names. Yeah. yeah. So it's funny because obviously when you pick a name, you don't go, oh, I want the most common name there possibly is. And you, you put a bit of thought into it where that name's going to come from and what it's going to be. And then uh, with most dog trainers that you take your dog to, they've seen hundreds of them that year. When Megan was born, my youngest, it was when Transformers like was really, really big. So I called her. Her name was either going to be Malia, which would have been quite different, Isabella or Megan. Anyway, we settled on Megan. We were living abroad in Malta. There wasn't many Megans. We brought her back in her, she started school. There were five in her class. There were five Megans. (laughs) But um, yeah, I think it's definitely a trendy thing. So Milo is out, everybody, if you're listening. Anyway, that has been an amazing podcast. Thank you both for making our 52nd one-year anniversary podcast fun and informative as always. If anybody wants to find you, Claire, maybe you, John, where do they go? (laughs) Uh, The the asylum is normally a good place to find me. Uh, website is www.familydogservices.co.uk. Uh, Family Dog Services also on on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Fabulous! Thank you all for listening. We hope you, you've enjoyed. I hope you haven't been too put off by our expletive words, and I promise you, we'll take it back to being very, very wholesome next week. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the ten tips and some more popped on the end, and we hope to speak to you all next week. Thank you for listening to LWDG Poddog with me, Joe Parrott. Now we all know training a dog takes time, energy and patience, but our lives can be really, really busy. Don't worry, the LWDG has got you covered. Join us for our free planning workshop where we will show you how to use short 10-minute training sessions each day to fast forward your dog's education. Our experts have years of experience in training dogs and will help you get started on the right foot. Register now and start making progress with your furry friend today. Go to our Facebook page, The Ladies Working Dog Group, and click on the pinned post. Or visit www.thelwdg.com.